We need to make sure that every vote is counted because when people exercise their right to vote, that needs to be respected. Thank you, Danny O'Connor. Much appreciated. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yeah. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Up on the uh, central coast of Oregon on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI and Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. We're watching you, Columbus. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, KODX in Seattle, Washington, KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, California, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast coast and around the globe every day on the internets on such fine affiliates as the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, just to name a few. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com here with another edition of the world-famous Bradcast. Thank you very much for joining us, joining me, joining the delightful Desiree Doyen. Hello, Desiree. I am here. Coming up, we will be joined by Brendan Fisher of the Campaign Legal Center to explain what could be very good news. Well, that'd be nice. Very good news uh, when it comes to uh, elections and dark money. Following a um, sort of wildly underreported court ruling last Friday requiring the disclosure of certain donors' names who give more than $200 to nonprofit groups for electioneering. That ruling comes just a week or so uh, after the uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin announced the names of donors to such groups will no longer need to be supplied to the IRS when those nonprofits do their federal paperwork each year. So I'm kind of confused. I'm very confused. Let me put it that way about uh, about these two seemingly conflicting new directives. Uh, one from the Treasury Department, one from a federal court. So hopefully Brendan can uh, sort that out for us and explain the new complaint that has been filed with the FEC by the Campaign Legal Center, charging that four Republican U.S. senators in their last elections were illegally colluding. Yes, colluding with the NRA, the National Rifle Association, in violation of campaign finance laws. Uh, so we'll uh, get Brendan to name those senators and uh, explain that complaint shortly. Also shortly, it's been a harrowing summer of heat. 
and related disasters. So Desi Doyen will join us for the latest Green News report to discuss late news on that front. And incredibly enough, just when you thought the Trump administration could <laughs> uh, do no uh, more. Do no worse. Yeah. <laughs> they want to bring asbestos back. Yep. It's back, baby. Seriously. So we'll talk about that in the Green News Report as well. All right. Well, before all of that, however, some adjusted numbers today on several fronts. Um, first, on the election front, we have a few changes, as expected, in some of the numbers from those two very close races that we discussed on yesterday's broadcast and that we will continue to watch uh, closely coming out of Tuesday's primary in Kansas and the U.S. House special election in Ohio's once very, very Republican 12th congressional district. Uh, maybe no longer. First, uh, in that uh, Ohio 12 U.S. House race where the Republican Troy Balderson was up over Democrat Danny Connor in the last major U.S. House special election of the year. He had been up after election night by just uh, 1,754 votes out of about 200,000 votes cast in that race. Well, shortly after we got off the air reporting those numbers yesterday, the uh, Columbus, uh, who was it? I'm sorry, Cincinnati Inquirer reports that the tight race between Democrat Danny O'Connor and Republican Troy Balderson just got tighter. Oh, dear. Election officials in Franklin County found 588 previously uncounted votes in a Columbus suburb. According to a Franklin County Board of Elections news release, the votes from a portion of one voting location had not been processed into the tabulation system on election night. Franklin County Board of Elections spokesman Aaron Sellers insists it was just a human error. This is not a conspiracy. He says when election officials brought two master personal electronic ballots, they're called PEBs. They're these little cartridges. They look like eight track tapes or uh, Nintendo game cartridges, if you're not quite as old as uh, Desiree and I. <laughs> um, these these PEBs uh, were they were brought back to the Franklin County Board of Elections from one of the polling locations. Two different ones. One was uploaded into the uh, tab into the computer tabulator uh, and was included in the final unofficial total of this uh, super tight congressional race on Tuesday night. But the other cartridge was not uploaded into the master tabulation system. And these little uh, cartridges, this is what on the particular systems they use in Franklin County, these 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems, these little cartridges are what store the um, the ballot programming, in other words, who is running and who is not, and the results from how people supposedly voted on those on those touchscreen machines on election days on election day. So um, the uh, one cartridge went in, the other one didn't. The next day, according to the uh, inquirer, as bipartisan members of the board of election were reviewing the race, they realized that the PEBs were. Um, missing the, the, the PEB's result on this one cartridge were missing. So the PEB and its 588 votes were then added into the system. The breakdown of those 588 votes was 198 votes for the Republican Troy Balderson, 388 votes for Democrat Danny O'Connor, 
and two votes for Green Party candidate Joe Manchik. So uh, that is essentially a 200 uh, vote, actually 190 vote gain for O'Connor. Balderson's already slim margin of victory has now shrunk to a little bit more than 1,500 votes, 1,564 votes. The PEB apparently was not uploaded on the night of the election, but it was always in a secure location. According to the uh, Franklin County Election Director Sellers, uh, election officials took both of the PEBs from the polling location, which was a senior citizen center, to the locked Board of Elections headquarters on Tuesday night. No one took the device home or forgot it at any polling location. He says, uh, we have procedures in place and it got missed. We're human. The inquirer notes the mistake may be embarrassing for Franklin County election officials, but they caught it quickly. And those 588 votes will now be included, along with additional absentee and provisional ballots across the district in the final tally, which must be completed by August 24. Balderson, the uh, Republican, naturally, he declared victory on Tuesday night, despite the tiny margin. Uh, in this very closely watched Ohio race where the Republicans should have won very easily, given that Trump won that district by 11 points in 2016 and Republicans have controlled the congressional seat there for almost 40 years now. Uh, The Republican there was elected by 36 points back in 2016. Uh, Congressman Tiberi, who has since uh, resigned, and that's why we have this special election. But O'Connor said on CNN the day after the election, the Democrat, that he was waiting for all votes to be counted before conceding or doing anything else. We need to make sure that every vote is counted because when people exercise their right to vote, that needs to be respected. Good. I hope he sticks with that. Uh, Many Democrats would have conceded by now, at least as we've seen over the years. The uh, canvassing and counting there will continue, even though almost all of the votes were cast on those unverifiable touchscreen voting systems I mentioned uh, across the seven different Ohio counties that make up the 12th district. But there are still a lot of uncounted provisional and absentee votes still to come. That includes uh, some 3,435 provisional ballots. Remember, we're talking about a race that has uh, only got a margin of about 1,500 votes now. We've got 3,400 provisional ballots and as many as 5,000 absentee ballots, which, if they were postmarked before the election, uh, can still come in over the next 10 days. Uh, though uh, everything's got to be totaled up by August 24. And for the record here, while there are 3,435 provisional ballots yet to be processed for the district, back in the statewide primary in Ohio in May, um, remember, this was a special election on Tuesday. The winner goes straight to Congress. But... um, Back in May, of all the provisional ballots issued statewide, some 88% of those ballots were, in fact, counted. Daily Coast reports that in Franklin County, which is the largest of the seven counties here um, in question in this uh, Ohio 12 race, uh, Franklin County usually beats that statewide average. So more than 88% of the provisionals will be counted.
And that sounds like uh, like that's a pretty close margin to assume. And and it reminds me that, remember, the Ohio Secretary of State has a nice little purge scheme that if you don't vote in a single federal election, you can be then put into the process of getting purged. So check your registration, especially if you didn't vote in the midterm. You have to vote. You have to vote in every election because apparently you're now voting for your life in more ways than one <laughs> in Ohio. Uh, by the way, if the final results of this race uh, in Ohio end up uh, showing a margin of 0.5% or less, then uh, there will be an automatic recount. The margin had been 09 before these new uncounted Franklin uh, County votes were added in. That margin is now 08 percentage points. So getting closer to automated uh, recount territory. Meanwhile, today we learned that the razor-thin unofficial election night margin of victory in another closely watched race, an even closer race in Kansas. The margin in that race has now been cut by more than half. Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach's incredibly slim lead over Republican Governor Jeff Collier in the GOP primary for the gubernatorial nomination had been, as of yesterday, uh, once the failed new touchscreen voting and tabulation systems in Johnson County actually uh, came in with their original uh, unofficial tabulation on Wednesday morning. That's how long these new systems took to come out with numbers in the most populous county in uh, in Kansas. Efficiency! Just uh, out, out of that, that slim lead had been, as of yesterday, 191 votes out of more than 310,000 votes cast. Well, that minuscule 191-vote lead has now shrunk to just 91 votes wow. after election officials discovered a mistake in the listing for one county's results in the state's tally of votes. The final unofficial results posted on the Secretary of State's website show Kobach winning uh, in Thompson in uh, Thomas County in northwest Kansas with 466 votes to Collier's 422. Very close, but the tally posted by the Thomas County clerk shows Collier winning with 522 votes or 100 votes more than what is listed on the Secretary of State's website. This uh, number was confirmed by the Associated Press on Thursday, this 522 uh, votes, the higher number, the additional 100 votes for Collier. Brian Kasky, the state election director, said that county officials pointed out the discrepancy uh, today following a routine request for a post-election check of the numbers so, uh, boy, uh, the Secretary of State's office accidentally gave 100 more votes to Chris Kobach. Somebody really ought to complain to the Secretary of State. Mm. Chris Kobach about that. Um, anyway, uh, human oversight wins again. Human beings were checking these numbers, uh, and this makes sense. Uh, apparently, the election director out in Thomas County actually showed the facts that she had sent into the secretary of state that showed Collier getting 522 votes instead of 422 votes. So someone probably misread it. Uh, in the meantime, election officials have yet to finish counting in Kansas as well. The late arriving mail-in ballots, which can arrive as late as Friday in Kansas. 
uh, or the provisional ballots provided to voters at the polls when their eligibility was not clear. There are believed to be some 10,000 of those untallied uh, votes still across the state as of today. So that 91 vote margin, I suspect, is going to change several times before this is all said and done. Uh, anyway, this is uh, this one is almost certainly, no matter how it ends up, is certainly going to end up as a uh, at a recount to determine who will face the Democratic gubernatorial candidate, Laura Kelly, who uh, won her race in the uh, in the Democratic primary easily on Tuesday night. So it's going to be Laura Kelly versus one of these two men. I know that a lot of Democrats are actually pulling for Chris Kobach. Because he's a little bit crazier and a little bit easier to uh, to beat, probably. All right, one more story here before we get to our break. Uh, as long as uh, we're talking about numbers that need adjusting today, Puerto Rico is now finally estimating in a report to Congress that Hurricane Maria killed more than 1,400 people. That, even as island officials said on Thursday that the confirmed toll still remains frozen at 64, pending a scientific review that is due out very soon. The government is relying on updated statistics that it first reported back in June. It said in a report to Congress detailing a $139 billion reconstruction plan that there were 1,427 more deaths from September to December of 2017 than the average for that same time period over the previous four years. The territory's government said the additional deaths resulted from the effects of the storm that led to cascading failures in infrastructure across the island of some three point, uh, almost 3.5 million U.S. citizens. The administration of Governor Ricardo Rosseo stopped updating its official death count uh, months ago and ordered an investigation. The uh, Public Safety Department has said the new total will reflect the findings of that investigation, which is expected in the coming weeks. Um, the uh, use of the higher death toll in this report to Congress the higher death number here was uh, first reported today by the New York Times. And most of the deaths occurred uh, not in the initial storm on September 20, but in the ensuing days and the weeks when the island-wide electricity outage and the roads were blocked by downed pow power lines. Other debris made it difficult for uh, emergency services to move around. And uh, FEMA and others were stretched beyond their capabilities. So, you know, back... Uh, when Donald Trump gave his uh, government, remember he gave his administration an A plus. Oh yes. I think uh, for that recovery effort, uh, during which Puerto Rico now concedes more than fourteen hundred Americans died during Donald Trump's A plus effort. Um, you recall that he had crowed about the fact that you know only a few dozen had been killed at one point and um, compared it to Hurricane Katrina. And so, you know, I got to wonder if that's why it took so long for Puerto Rico to admit the obvious, that all the other experts who were looked at this were saying the, the death toll was far higher in the weeks after the two storms, Irma and Maria, slammed uh, uh, Puerto Rico. You got to wonder if Governor Rosseo was worried that it might make Trump look bad 
when he was counting on Donald Trump and uh, then, if they you know told us what the real numbers were back and then. And then he might take it out on Puerto Rico for yep. making him look bad by not giving them the assistance that they need and deserve, which he kind of did anyway. This is the problem with authoritarianism. Anyway, uh, yeah, if uh, he was if Trump, you know, had been talking and comparing it to, you know, Katrina and that horrific disaster. Well, in Katrina, the official death toll was ultimately one thousand eight hundred and thirty three. And now in Maria, state officials are estimating uh, almost as many killed at one thousand four hundred and twenty seven. So um, this, in fact, was a a Katrina-sized disaster, it seems. Oh, indeed. All right, let's take a quick break here, and we'll try to clear up uh, some more conflicting things. Two conflicting stories on dark money ordered darker by the Treasury Department and dark money ordered into the light, into the sunshine by a federal judge just days ago. Brendan Fisher joins us next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. We could use some sunlight, if not sunshine. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. A week or so ago, Donald Trump's Treasury Department, citing a long-debunked allegation that the IRS during the Obama administration had been inappropriately targeting right-wing nonprofit groups for extra scrutiny when they sought tax-exempt status, uh, the Treasury Department announced they would no longer require such nonprofits claiming to be social welfare groups who spend money on electioneering to list the names of their donors when filing each year with the IRS. Never mind that progressive groups, by the way, were also given the exact same scrutiny by the IRS as the uh, Treasury Department's inspector general found. Nonetheless, the zombie lies that never dies, suggesting that so-called conservative groups were somehow targeted in some fashion by Obama, That was used as an excuse by Treasury to, as the campaign legal center's Brendan Fisher described, to make dark money even darker. But now a court order issued last Friday by a federal judge would seem to do the exact opposite of what the Treasury Department did. As Politico reports, a U.S. District Court judge on Friday issued a ruling invalidating a federal Election Commission regulation that has allowed donors to so-called dark money groups to remain anonymous. That is the latest development in a years-long legal battle that could have major implications for campaign finance. Judge Beryl A. Howell ruled that the FEC's current regulation of such groups, including 501c4 nonprofits, fails to uphold the standard that Congress intended 
when it required the disclosure of politically related spending. The judge wrote, the challenged regulation facilitates such financial routing, blatantly undercuts the congressional goal of fully disclosing the sources of money flowing into federal political campaigns, and thereby suppresses the benefits intended to accrue from disclosure. That from Judge Howell, an appointee, an Obama appointee uh, to the uh, D.C. District Court. The decision in the case filed by Citizens for Ethics and Responsibility in Washington, or CREW, is, of course, likely to be appealed political reports, though it's unclear, at least to me, who would do that appeal in this case. But for now, at least, the ruling seems to pave the way for new requirements from the Federal Election Commission that could force nonprofits to disclose donors who gave at least $200 toward influencing federal elections. This could be a very, very big decision by this federal judge. It would seem to be a sea change in the way our elections have been run over the last decade or so, at least since Karl Rove's Crossroads GPS, who was at the center of this particular case, began collecting millions of dollars of dark money from undisclosed donors uh, that were giving to his 501c4, but they were not disclosing those names to the public before elections or in most cases even after, other than in undisclosed filings to the IRS, who said last week they're no longer going to require such groups to give them the names of their donors. All of this, even as Judge Howell says that the FEC must now write interim regulations uh, within the next 45 days, as the crucial 2018 midterms are now less than 90 days away. Joining us to help me make sense of all of this, if possible, along with a separate but sort of related complaint recently filed uh, regarding Wisconsin's Republican U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, who is now being alleged by the Campaign Legal Center to have unlawfully coordinated or, yes, colluded with the National Rifle Association during his 2016 campaign for U.S. Senate, is the Campaign Legal Center's Brendan Fisher. He's associate counsel at CLC, uh, where he directs their work before federal regulatory agencies such as the FEC, advocating for vigorous and fair enforcement of campaign finance and ethics laws. He's probably a very busy man these days. Brendan Fisher, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Thanks for having me. I wanted to uh, talk to you originally when this uh, story of the Ron Johnson and NRA campaign uh, took place, uh, that and these three other senators. I wanted to talk to you about that. But since then, these other confusing stories about the FEC and dark money, uh, political nonprofits have come out, and I'm totally confused. So first, Brendan, can you explain what the original case was that Judge Howell was deciding on uh, in this recent ruling? And then I can ask you about how it syncs up with the Treasury Department's announcement last week. Well, you know, actually, I might propose that we uh, reverse the order. Okay. Uh, the Judge Howell's decision might be a little bit easier to understand if we talk about the, the IRS uh Rule change uh, okay. first. If you, your IRS change first, sure. So, so you know, as you mentioned at the top, uh, for for years, uh, 
501c4 organizations like Carl Rose, Crossroads GPS, mm-hmm. uh, have not had to disclose their donors to the FEC, the agency in charge of administering federal elections, mm-hmm. but they have had to disclose their donors to the IRS. Uh, the IRS, however, does not make those names public. Mm. Uh, the, the, the issue with that, uh, the issue when you take those two, those two facts together is that the FEC uh, has been failing at, on, on its job. Uh, it's been uh, failing to enforce the disclosure laws that are on the books. So the only reporting whatsoever uh, comes through this IRS Schedule B requirement where 501c4 organizations report their donors privately mm-hmm. to the IRS. So if you're concerned about foreign money in elections, uh, you should be really concerned about the Treasury Department stating that 501c4s like the Crossroads GPS or the NRA uh, no longer have to disclose their top donors to the IRS. Uh, and, and the timing of this Treasury uh, Department change was pretty terrible. Uh, it happened on the same day that federal prosecutors charged Maria Butina mm-hmm. with being an unregistered Russian agent who tried to influence American politics through the NRA, which had spent at least $35 million through its 501c4 arm during the last election cycle. Uh, the FEC was not going to require the NRA to publicly disclose its donors, and the only donor disclosure reporting on the part of the NRA would have been to the IRS. And now, as a result of this Treasury, this treasury change, uh, that reporting to the IRS is no longer happening. So even when that, uh, those disclosures from the NRA, they're not made public because they're not given to the FEC, they're giving to the, uh, given to the IRS, or at least they were before this decision, at least uh, that would allow uh, federal investigators, prosecutors and so forth, access to the information about where, uh, in this case, uh, NRA money uh, may have come from in case they wanted to investigate foreign money in American elections, correct? That that would be at least useful for uh, federal prosecutors, if not for the public, until this rule change uh, a week or so ago, correct? Exactly, exactly. Okay. And, and in large part, the reason that uh, this rule change on the part of the IRS is so concerning is because uh, the FEC has done such a poor job of ensuring disclosure of politically active organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if the FEC was doing its job, then it wouldn't matter quite so much mm. uh, if the IRS was not collecting this information. Uh, and that, I think, is why Judge Howell's uh, decision uh, was, was so important. Gotcha. So what did Judge Howell then... Uh, so presumably that decision uh, still stands, that uh, these groups will not be required to give their donor names to the IRS. But what did Judge Howell say in this case that changes at least what is done when it comes to the FEC disclosures? Uh, Well, the short answer is that Judge Howell's decision said the FEC has been failing at its job and it needs to go back to the drawing board and draft new rules that are going to ensure effective donor disclosure for certain types of political advertisements. Uh, so I think it's, and this is again, a Judge Howell's decision is a, is a reminder that the FEC is largely to blame for the rise of dark money. Uh, it's not just the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United, it also is in large part the, the fault of the FEC mm-hmm. for failing to enforce the, the laws that are on the books. So, you know, the Supreme Court has endorsed donor disclosure, 
And the laws passed by Congress say that donors to politically active dark money groups must be disclosed. Uh, falls to the FEC to uh, draft the rules that interpret the laws passed by Congress and to enforce those rules. But what the FEC has done is draft rules that narrow the donor disclosure laws passed by Congress, and then they failed to enforce even those narrow rules. Uh, so this one, so this case uh, arose from a, a, a complaint filed by Crew involving mm-hmm. Crossroads GPS, a Carl Rove's dark money organization. Mm-hmm. And uh, several years ago, Carl Rove was at a fundraiser in Tampa, and he told uh, the the donors at this fundraiser that some donor who really likes Josh Mandel offered a three million dollar matching challenge to use towards Crossroads GPS's budget in Ohio. Uh, even though the law says that a uh, group like Crossroads GPS that makes independent expenditures supporting a candidate uh, must disclose all donors who gave over $200 for the purpose of furthering an independent expenditure, uh, Crossroads never reported the identity of the donor who said, I am giving you $3 million to support your your spending mm-hmm. in Ohio. Uh and the, the FEC said, or the Republican commissioners on the FEC said that, well, even if, this, even if this unnamed donor said that he was giving to Crossroads GPS in order to support Crossroads GPS's spending in Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, he did not, there's no evidence that the donor gave for the purpose of funding the specific ads that Crossroads GPS ran. Crossroads GPS did not specifically go to that donor and say, here is the ad we are going to run. Will you give us money for that? Uh, instead, the donor said, here, here Crossroads GPS is $3 million, spend it in Ohio supporting Josh Mandel. And the FEC said, well, under that set of circumstances, uh, no, donor disclo- no donor disclosure is, is required. Uh, and Judge Howell said, well, that's, that's ridiculous. Uh, mm. the, the FEC's rule is ridiculous and the FEC's enforcement of that rule is, is ridiculous. So they have to go back to the drawing board and draft new rules within 45 days that uh, give effect to the, the laws passed by Congress many years ago that are designed to ensure uh, full public disclosure of the, the donors who are funding independent expenditures. The uh, executive director of Crew, Noah Bookbinder, says that uh, this ruling looks like what he calls a major game changer. He says, based on this ruling, the public should know a whole lot more about who is giving money for the purpose of influencing an election, and it will be much harder for donors to anonymously contribute to groups that advertise in elections. But uh, So based on the, the ruling... It certainly sounds like this would uh, would be the case that this I mean, does this change kind of all of the uh, dark money giving that we have seen over the past uh, decade or so? I mean, what happens now? This uh, judge has ordered the FEC to write new rules within within 45 days. As I noted, we're just uh, three months now from the November elections. Is this the game changer that uh, Noah Bookbinder suggests? Well, it's certainly it's certainly a very big deal. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're not sure whether this decision is going to be appealed. Uh, mm-hmm. It's unlikely the FEC would do so because, uh, for reasons I can get into, uh, it's possible that Crossroads GPS could do so, but that's unclear. Um, but even if the FEC, if the FEC does go forward and draft draft effective disclosure rules 
for independent expenditures, that is only going to apply to independent expenditures. So a, a dark money group that funds ads that expressly advocate for or against a candidate, that includes words like vote for this candidate mm-hmm. or vote, vote against this candidate, they're going to have to disclose their donors. Uh, but this decision does not affect disclosure for spending on so-called electioneering communications, which are ads that are run near an election that mention a candidate but don't expressly urge viewers to mm. vote for or vote against the candidate. Uh, so a dark money group could still run electioneering communications uh, in an election and avoid donor disclosure. So it is possible that we would see more dark money groups shifting away from spending on independent expenditures expressly advocating for or against candidates and spending more on electioneering communications, which are thinly veiled election election ads that fail to include words of express advocacy. So, for example, those ads that say uh, Democrats want to destroy everything you know about life. Uh, consider uh, this uh, Republican candidate who uh, believes the opposite. And the, the, those sorts of ads where they're not expressly saying vote for a candidate A or vote for candidate B, those they can still keep a secret. Yeah, exactly. And these are these are the ads that uh, often end with a uh, with an urge to, or, or often end by telling viewers to call the candidate and tell them to stop murdering puppies, or right. tell them to stop um, right. to stop doing some terrible thing. Uh, yeah, those are those are so-called issue ads, and they become regulated as electioneering communications if they're if they're run near an election. Uh, so we might see we might see more dark money spending uh, going towards those electioneering communications in order to avoid uh, donor disclosure. But but this is still I think the importance of this opinion can't be understated. I mean it was a, it was a smack in the face uh, to the FEC uh, and to their their contorted efforts and to the contorted efforts on the part of the FEC uh, to avoid enforcing the donor disclosure laws passed by Congress and endorsed by the Supreme Court. And now they've been ordered to do this, to at least change this portion of uh, campaign finance laws uh, with an interim regulation. But there are currently a number of vacancies, as I understand it, on the uh, six-person Federal Election Commission. Can they even make a new rule without a full uh, commission? And by the way, who is who is currently missing from that commission? It's supposed to include uh, essentially three Democratic and three Republican appointees. Uh, which the GOP has used to ensure of late that the uh, commission is constantly deadlocked on just about everything and can't do anything. Uh, but who is uh, w- which appointees are currently missing from the FEC as we're uh, barreling towards the November election? Yeah, uh, it's a, it's a, an important issue. Uh, so the FEC is, as you said, a six-member commission, and it requires four affirmative votes to do anything requires four votes to open an investigation, mm-hmm. requires four votes to adopt new rules, uh, and the, the commission is now down to four commissioners, uh, two Democrats, two Republicans. Uh, so to do anything, the FEC is going to require unanimity. Uh, so that is, that is definitely tricky uh, when it comes to uh, complying with a court order that it adopts new rules within 45 days. It's going to require all four commissioners agreeing on agreeing on new rules, which is which is not an easy task. Yeah, good luck. Good luck with that. I don't know what's going to happen when they can't agree, but all right. Uh, I mean, uh, 
and they also would have to these would be this would be the same commission that would appeal Judge Howell's uh, ruling if they chose to do so. And again, all four would have to agree. And I can't imagine that the two Democratic appointees would would agree to appeal this. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. So I think it's unlikely for that reason. I think it's unlikely that the the FEC will appeal the the the, the decision from Judge Howell. But it is possible that Crossroads DPS, which was uh, an intervener in the case, uh, will try to do so. Uh, it's unclear whether they that whether Crossroads DPS would have uh, standing as an intervener to appeal this case, but I'm I'm, I'm sure that they will try. Uh, well, so I think there's. Uh, we'll be keeping our eyes on this because I, I. It sure sounds like there's going to be more to come, a lot more to come on this particular case. But I wanted to uh, want to talk to you, Brendan Fisher, uh, about this NRA Ron Johnson case, which is fascinating, according to the. Wisconsin Gazette recently, a complaint filed with the Federal Election Commission by your group, the Campaign Legal Center, which has been driving Wisconsin Republicans crazy for many years. Uh, The uh, CLC, you guys allege that the National Rifle Association violated U.S. law by using a common vendor to illegally coordinate with Wisconsin U.S. Senator Ron Johnson and his 2016 campaign, as well as three other U.S. Senate campaigns in 2014, uh, in violation of FEC campaign finance laws prohibiting coordination between candidates and outside groups like the NRA. Well, that sounds kind of serious. What are you alleging that the NRA did here? Uh, with Johnson in 2016 when uh, he is uh, said to have defeated Democratic former U.S. Senator Russ Feingold in his uh, in his bid to return to the U.S. Senate that year. Yeah. So, well, as you know, campaign finance law prohibits coordination between candidates and outside groups like the NRA. Mm-hmm. Uh, candidates can only raise and spend money within limits. Outside groups like the NRA, in many cases, can raise and spend unlimited amounts of money, uh, and the reason for the the reason for that is that they're operating independently of the candidates. And if a group like the NRA is not operating independently of the candidates that they're supporting, uh, then they can't raise and spend unlimited amounts of money. And so the the FEC has a number of of rules uh, defining coordination. And in order to preserve the independence between candidates and outside groups like the NRA. Uh, those rules limit how a vendor can work with both a candidate and an outside group supporting that candidate. Uh, the The idea is that the uh, a vendor that's serving both the candidate and the outside group could act as a conduit for the a conduit for coordination, a conduit mm-hmm. for the sharing of information from uh, the candidate about their strategies to the outside group like the NRA, and then the NRA can produce ads or spend other money. Uh, in order to uh, most effectively support support that candidate, mm-hmm. you know the uh, the NRA could learn from the vendor that the candidate is going to be running ads between 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. So then the NRA is going to make sure that it's going to run its ads between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. Uh, to make sure that uh, the the money is spent most effectively, mm-hmm. or they can know that the candidate is going to be using. This message, so the NRA is going to be using another message mm-hmm. that, that's complementary. All of that is coordination. All of it's prohibited. Um, so what we found, or what uh, a reporter for Political Magazine had found, 
uh, is that this big GOP consulting firm called OnMessage, uh, which the NRA had been contracting with for several years, had set up this shell corporation called Starboard, uh, located at the same address, same directors, uh, effectively the same the same organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, OnMessage provided services to candidates like Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, as well as Tom Tillis, Cory Gardner, Tom Cotton in the 2014 elections. And the NRA spent money supporting those candidates, but instead of routing that money and contract or routing that money through and contracting with on message, they instead contracted with Starboard, this shell corporation that was set up by OnMessage. Mm-hmm. Um, so by all appearances, uh, this shell corporation was set up to avoid detection uh, of these potential common vendor uh, common vendor issues, and it was set up to avoid detection of these potential allegations of coordination between the NRA and the candidates that they're supporting. And yet you have uh, the NRA's own group with uh, the this the shell corporate. I mean, it seems pretty cut and dry that they were obviously coordinating. That would seem to be obviously uh, a violation of the FEC's rules. But uh, what's the process from here? This is a complaint with the FEC. I suspect it will take a very long time to be uh, investigated by the FEC. Uh, you know, we're, we're just now talking about that case from Carl Rove and Crossroads GPS from years ago. Uh, so what, what's the process from here, and what is the remedy that you are seeking at this point? We're now two years past Ron Johnson's election to the U.S. Senate, four years since uh, Cotton and Gardner and Tillis were all elected uh, with the alleged illegal coordination of the NRA. So how does this move forward? Yeah, well, so the, the complaint was filed with the FEC. Uh, FEC is going to give the respondents, uh, primarily the NRA, an opportunity to respond. Uh, the lawyers at the FEC will make a recommendation to the full commission or what remains of the commission mm-hmm. uh, about whether to open an investigation. Uh, but then the, the problem arises that there are only four commissioners on the FEC right now, and they re- it requires four affirmative votes in order to open an investigation. So here, too, it's going to require uh, unanimity on the part of the FEC to open an investigation. And the Republican commissioners uh, for the past decade or so uh, have looked to identify every opportunity to avoid enforcing the law. Uh, that was what was at issue mm-hmm. in Judge Howell's decision, where she smacked down the FEC and said, you guys are nuts, uh, <laughs> your, your rules are inadequate, and you're not even enforcing those narrow rules. Uh, and it is possible that that will happen again here. Uh, if the FEC does dismiss the complaint, then we would potentially have an opportunity to, to sue the FEC in court, like Crew did with this Crossroads GPS case, uh, and create, present an opportunity for a judge to look at this and determine whether an investigation should have been opened. So it's a long road ahead there as well. Uh, Brendan Fisher, let me ask you one more uh, question. Completely unfair to do this with just uh, uh, 30 seconds or a minute left, but how does this particular uh, suit, um, how does it sync up with the reports about the NRA funneling money received from Russian oligarchs, where we sort of started this segment uh, into the 2016 campaign, as has been alleged? Uh, or does this particular complaint uh, sync up with that in any way? 
Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, it's still it's it's still unknown uh, how much Russian money may have been given to the NRA in the 2016 elections, and how much of that money made it into the 2016 elections. Uh, there are certainly uh, a, a number of pieces of evidence that that suggest that the the NRA uh, was, if not infiltrated by by Russia or Russians, it was certainly seen as uh, a desirable target by Russia. Uh, and we also know that the NRA spent at least, the NRA's 501c4 dark money arms spent mm-hmm. at least $35 million in the 2016 elections, including money spent supporting uh, the, the candidates like Ron Johnson and Tom Tillis and Tom Cotton, uh, who are contracting with Starboard while the NRA, or who are contracting with On Message while the NRA was contracting with Starboard mm-hmm. in an apparent effort to get around the coordination rules. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot of uh, uh, parallel issues uh, floating out there right now. It's not exactly clear how, they, how or if they tie together, um, but certainly hoping that more information will be coming to light in the coming months and years. Geez, I uh, I don't envy you trying to make sense of all of this and figure it out, especially with all of the efforts to keep all of this from becoming known to the public. Uh, Brendan Fisher, uh, follow him on the Twitters at Brendan underscore Fisher. Of course, uh, check out his work and that of the Campaign Legal Center at CampaignLegalCenter.org. Brendan is associate counsel over there and uh, always helpful uh, when you appear to make sense of these complicated issues on the broadcast. Brendan Fisher, really appreciate you joining us again today. Great. Well, thanks for having me. You bet. All right. Quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen, who is on deck with the latest Green News report coming up next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Desi Doyen's Siren Song. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Des, I don't know if you saw this report from Media Matters a week or so ago, uh, but throughout the recent record-breaking heat. This came out in mid-July, okay? So it's been as hot or hotter since then. Oh, definitely. We had record-breaking heat in late June, early July, and um, throughout that, the broadcast TV networks Overwhelmingly, you'll be shocked to learn, failed to report on the links between climate change and extreme heat. Yeah, don't say. Despite blistering and deadly heat from the West Coast to the East, over that two-week period from late June, early July, ABC, CBS, and NBC aired a combined 127 segments. 127 segments uh, or weathercasts discussing the heat wave, but just one segment on CBS this morning mentioned climate change color me shocked which is why we need you and what you've been doing for 10 years right here on uh, the green news report so let's get to it our latest gnr the epa this summer proposed a rule that may allow a number of new products to contain asbestos trump's epa is bringing asbestos back 
California pushes back against Trump's rollback of mileage and emissions standards. As California shatters the record for hottest month ever recorded and hottest rainfall. Plus, still have time to act. Bad news and good news in a scary new global warming study. All of those scary stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. So in other words, you're saying that they might come out making asbestos look not as dangerous as it really is in their evaluation. Exactly. Hey, MAGA, making asbestos great again. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, the summer of heat records continues to continue. (laughs) Indeed it does. More shocking records shattered in this record-breaking, global warming, turbocharged summer of 2018. The hottest rainfall ever recorded on the planet, 119 degrees, fell on Imperial California last week. The hottest rainfall? Yes, it is extremely rare to have rainfall above 100 degrees. I mean, this is the water? The water itself is above 100 degrees? Yes, 119 degrees. Wow. And Death Valley in California broke the record for the all-time hottest month in recorded history. That was in July, breaking the record that Death Valley set just last year. Meanwhile, retail gas prices are going up. The price of crude oil spiked this week in anticipation of the Trump administration reimposing sanctions on Iran, including its oil exports, in coming months. But Politico reports that pain at the pump for consumers likely won't be as bad as the last time gas prices were this high because... Thanks to President Obama, fuel efficiency standards are a lot higher today, so families don't have to fill their gas tanks quite as often. Speaking of fuel efficiency standards, as expected, the Trump administration last week proposed weakening future vehicle mileage standards that would have saved consumers even more in fuel costs starting in 2022. Analysts say big oil will be the big beneficiary from increasing oil consumption. Even the EPA's own data estimates that 40,000 more Americans will die every year from the increase in air pollution. But important to note, these Trump rollbacks are not a done deal, you can weigh in during the short window for public comment. Speak up at regulations.gov. The Trump EPA is also proposing revoking California's authority to set its own higher standards, credited with reducing the state's notorious air pollution. This week, California pushed back in what promises to be a protracted legal battle. The state regulator, the California Air Resources Board, issued a scathing and detailed report refuting the administration's rollback as, quote, contrary to the facts and the law. That's not a bug. That's a feature. Well, California says it plans to hold automakers to those tighter standards to maintain public health benefits. Good. States' rights. Remember when Republicans used to believe in that sort of thing? The Trump EPA is also bringing asbestos back, proposing a new rule to allow companies to use it in some products with agency approval. Asbestos is banned in most countries because it causes mesothelioma and lung cancers, but it's not banned in the U.S. despite killing thousands of Americans every year. Now, the EPA says it's just closing a loophole. But critics say no amount of asbestos is safe and only an outright ban on all uses is sufficient. It only kills about 40,000 people a year and is banned pretty much everywhere else in the world except for here. 
What are you worried about, Des? Finally, a message of hope from scientists who are pushing back against media coverage of their new study on global warming's long-term catastrophic consequences. The Hothouse Earth study concludes that if global temperatures rise more than two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, a domino effect could kick in, triggering self-reinforcing climate change feedbacks that push the climate system into hothouse conditions, rendering large parts of the Earth uninhabitable. However, scientist and co-author Diana Liverman of the University of Arizona tells the Green News Report that the good news is that with action, it's all completely avoidable. So hothouse Earth is not our destiny. It's an option that we could choose. Hopefully we're going to choose a much more stable path and we don't kick off all of these feedbacks that take us to a much hotter environment. Well, I hope we don't, but I'm starting to run out of hope. Is that just me? Dr. Liverman says she sees hope in political and social movements demanding action all around the world. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Don't give up on us, I know. We can still come through. Don't give up on us, babe. <laughs> Don't give up on us, babe. What Wait a great it. song. Wait for it. Thank Total seventies, man. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. I have hope again. Um, I had one follow-up there that I wanted to get to on the asbestos story. Going to have to hold that for another day, but that gives you a great reason to tune in to our next thrilling broadcast. Until then, my thanks to our producer Desi Doyen, to Brendan Fisher of Campaign Legal Center, and to all of you for tuning in today. If you missed any portion of today's show, feel free to download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Though we do ask those of you who can to please stop by bradblog.com slash donate. You are the folks who help keep us on your public airwaves at bradblog.com slash donate. We have no commercials, no advertisers, uh, just you. So thank you for that. You can also drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters. I am the Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Don't give up on us, baby. We're still worth one more try. I know we put a last one by. Just for a